You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, November 3rd, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. Today, we will be reading the following articles. A Fight Over Finances by Will Matsuka. Eyes on the Mitigation Prize by Will Matsuka. Everything is Connected to Everything by Kaylee Harder. Shredding Grass by Chad Robert Peterson. On the Record by Jesse J. Gray. Death in Memphis by Jesse J. Gray. Real to Real by Michael J. Casey. Native Noir by Bart Shaneman. Beautiful Chaos by Nick Hutchinson. A Fight Over Finances CU Sends Faculty to COP27 in Egypt by Will Matsuka Every year, hundreds of delegates, activists, scientists, and industry representatives spend two weeks discussing how to mitigate climate change at the Conference of the Parties, COP. This year, COP27 is in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, from November 6th to 18th. CU Boulder is sending six people to the conference each week. A number of people affiliated with the school are also going to the conference, but got their credentials from other organizations. Marilyn Averill is a senior fellow with the Getches Wilkeson Center for Natural Resources, Energy, and the Environment at the University of Colorado Law School. Averill, who has attended 17 COPs since 2000 but will not be attending this year, believes in the incremental process of the COP. She expects this year's conference to be focused on financing. Countries that have contributed least to climate change often are the ones that are most impacted by it, she says, and they really want some kind of compensation assistance from the global north. Countries held responsible for contributing most to climate change are often industrialized countries in the global north, like the U.S. and countries in Europe. Averill says most people, especially from the global south, would like to get a broad fund set up for loss and damage. But she is not optimistic that a fund will be set up, beyond one for a more narrow purpose. There's going to be a real fight over finances, she says. The U.S. and other industrial countries are not likely to be supportive of something like that. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the adoption of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC, which is organized to prevent dangerous human interference in the climate system. UNFCCC's decision-making body is the COP. 
While there have been some grand achievements, like establishing the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, COP has been criticized by environmental advocates for not fulfilling promises or creating enough tangible outcomes as the effects of climate change become more apparent. This is not the first time there has been talk about creating a system for compensation. In Copenhagen in 2009, Rich nations in the global north made a promise to channel $100 billion a year to less wealthy nations by 2020 to help them adapt to climate change and increase mitigation and adaptation efforts. That didn't happen. It's the crux of the finance problem. The global north agrees that the south needs help, but is not willing to set up a comprehensive fund to address their needs. One reason for the foot shuffling is how difficult it is to monetize the climate crisis and disasters, and to quantify and assign responsibility. To Averill, who has a background in law, it's a question of liability. The U.S. delegates are not willing to say that the United States is responsible for compensating people for injuries relating to climate change, she says. The UNFCCC delegation system also works by consensus. So, if countries are not supportive of a proposition, it won't pass. Averill says the idea of setting up a new commitment is going to be difficult, and it is likely to get a lot of opposition from industrialized countries. Because of these challenges, Averill doesn't expect big accomplishments from the conference in Egypt. Trying to set up a new commitment is going to be difficult, I think it's going to get a lot of opposition, certainly from this country, but also from the EU and from other industrialized countries. Eyes on the Mitigation Prize AI and the Future of Wildfire Detection in Boulder County by Will Matsuka Boulder County has three extra pairs of eyes helping detect fire. The eyes, cameras built by Pano AI, use geosatellite data and field sensors to confirm fires and tip off responders, helping them verify 911 calls and react faster to emergencies. On October 20th, the 20 acre Lake Ridge Trail fire was detected by the technology, the first fire it located since the partnership began in mid September. Pano AI's technology is meant to help communities mitigate and adapt to climate change, especially in fire-prone landscapes like Boulder County. Seth McKinney, Fire Management Officer for the Boulder County Sheriff's Office, says they want to update historical tactics with modern technology. This is one of the first times we're really trying to make an attempt to add more technology to wildland firefighting efforts, he says. There are three sites scattered across the county where the cameras are installed on existing radio towers with high vantage points. The cameras that caught the Lake Ridge Trail fire were located on Lee Hill and Mount Thoradin. Once detected, they pinpointed the fire's location within 600 feet. McKinney guessed the cameras were about 6 and 12 miles away from the fire's location. The third location is above Eldora Ski Area. The Lake Ridge Trail Fire was a unique scenario because it was started by someone working for a landscaping company who quickly called the fire into authorities. 
But, McKinney says, the technology detected the smoke only a few minutes after the initial call. The technology uses learning AI and computer vision to continuously observe the landscape within a 15-mile radius. Each station has two cameras that stitch together high-quality pictures to create a large panoramic photo that updates every minute. Once it detects and verifies a fire, it sends out alerts and mobile notifications to responders. McKinney says the technology is particularly valuable detecting smoke in remote areas of the county and wilderness areas because it can notify authorities well before someone could reach cell service. In more populated areas, it helps filter the many fire-related 911 calls that are false alarms, along with detection. Detection isn't always our challenge, says McKinney. It's that actual intelligence. The city of Boulder, Boulder County, and Excel Energy each footed the bill for the cameras, running at $25,000 per site. The county's trial run for the system is up at the end of February. McKinney says the county has roughly talked about expanding the number of cameras, including one at the gun barrel radio site in Niwot. Ideally, I can see another three, maybe even four cameras going up in the county. Everything is connected to everything. How the National Snow and Ice Data Center prioritizes collaboration to study climate change. By Kaylee Harder. The work of the National Snow and Ice Data Center, NSIDC, at CU Boulder is as varied and interconnected as the Earth systems they study. On any given day, one scientist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center might be doing research on the geopolitical impacts of Arctic change, while another is educating policymakers, while data specialists and software developers work to handle datasets that are used by the likes of NASA, NOAA, and scientists across the world. Whatever is going on in the cryosphere, you can be assured that NSIDC is part of it, says NSIDC Director Mark Cerese. That's saying a lot, considering that the cryosphere consists of all the frozen regions of the planet, including snow, ice, glaciers, sea ice, ice sheets, ice shelves, frozen ground, and permafrost. In one recent study co-authored by NSIDC senior researcher Twila Moon, scientists discovered a genetically distinct, previously unknown subpopulation of polar bears in southeast Greenland that has adapted to use glacial ice to hunt in the absence of sea ice, which has big implications for management and conservation of the species. In another study led by Cerese, researchers are working alongside indigenous communities to better understand the impacts of rain on snow events in the Arctic. And while the world of polar bears and sea ice may seem a world away from Boulder, there is perhaps no place better connected to the frozen parts of our planet than the National Snow and Ice Data Center. The center has been around for more than 40 years, but in recent years it has increasingly prioritized collaboration across disciplines and communities. NSIDC is both a data management center and a research center, and the collaboration between the two is part of what makes NSIDC tick. We're involved very much in the science of using the data, Cerese says. 
We produce some of the data ourselves. We have this synergy between the data management side and the science side of us. And that is really what has made us so successful. Not only does the cryosphere span from the Arctic to the Antarctic, and many regions in between, it's also a rapidly changing part of the Earth system that has far-reaching impacts. For example, melt from the ice sheets in the Arctic can influence ocean currents and cause sea level rise in the lower and mid-latitudes, which in turn impacts coastal infrastructure. Thawing permafrost, or frozen ground, can release large amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. One of the fundamental parts of understanding and dealing with climate change is starting to view our world as an interconnected system, says Moon, much of whose research centers on the Greenland ice sheet. There's all of these elements, and they feed back and relate to each other. These systems don't understand borders and are fundamental to the air, water, and food systems we rely on, Moon says. Everything is connected to everything, Sereze says, echoing Moon's sentiment. In the Arctic Rain on Snow study being led by Sereze, researchers are studying the physical, ecological, and societal impacts of rain on snow events, which are becoming increasingly common as the Arctic warms. Rain on snow is a phenomenon in which rain freezes in thick ice sheets on top of snow, preventing reindeer and other animals from accessing the grasses and lichens they rely on for food, ultimately causing starvation. These impacts can be devastating, as reindeer herding communities rely on the animals for everything from food to clothes to transportation, Sarese says. The study is a collaboration between NSIDC researchers and the indigenous communities who have been witnessing and are being impacted by these events. Shari Fox, a senior researcher scientist at NSIDC, is working to help facilitate knowledge exchange with indigenous people like hunters and reindeer herders. Fox is based in the Arctic, in Clyde River, Nunavut, an Inuit community on Baffin Island, where she works for NSIDC remotely. She's been working with Inuit for more than 25 years with a focus on community-led research, indigenous self-determination, and the co-production of knowledge. For too long, research in the Arctic has been driven by researchers from the South who have viewed the Arctic as a laboratory, Fox wrote in an email. It is a home, a homeland. Inuit and other Arctic indigenous peoples are the original researchers of their own lands. They know it best. The work of cross-national research is no easy task. Building trust in communities takes time, and geopolitical events can sometimes throw a wrench in the plans. The COVID-19 pandemic and Russian invasion of Ukraine, for example, significantly impacted where researchers in the Arctic Rain on Snow study, which began in 2020, could and couldn't travel. The work of NSIDC goes beyond working with an interconnected web of communities and scientists across the globe. It's also about education and outreach for everyone from K-12 through students to policymakers. Moon views this education as equity work, and much of her work in this realm focuses on helping people understand our climate realities and feel connected to the cryosphere through storytelling and interactive learning. 
It's not so much about helping folks feel specifically connected to the Arctic or to the Greenland ice sheet, Moon says, but rather helping folks feel connected to the changes we're all experiencing. Exactly what you're experiencing on one day can look different, she says. I might be dealing with wildfire smoke while you're dealing with a river flood. Someone else is dealing with trouble with growing their crops. But we're having a very shared human experience of a system that has for so long seemed very familiar, suddenly doing things that are surprising and unexpected. It's also about helping folks feel empowered. Moon says it's reasonable to feel anger, grief, and frustration over our changing climate. But she encourages individuals to find opportunities for action within their own lives and communities. We still have a really wide range of future potential paths, she says. We're in a place where we do need system change, but systems are also made of individuals. Shredding Grass The 73rd Warren Miller film takes a light-hearted approach to celebrating winter by Chad Peterson. It finally happened, the first snow of the season in Boulder. Though little more than a dusting, the late October snow heralded the beginning of ski season. Helping to usher in the excitement for Colorado's upcoming winter season is Daymaker, Warren Miller Entertainment's 73rd annual ski and snowboard film. With more than 200 tour dates nationally and independently, Daymaker will make its way across 31 states, four Canadian provinces, and overseas to New Zealand, Australia, the United Kingdom, and Iceland. Boulder Theatre hosts a handful of screenings November 10th through 12th. Shot in Alaska, Colorado, Idaho, Utah, Canada, Greece, and Switzerland, Daymaker is a celebration of snow sports. From checking in with some of the rising stars in the skiing and snowboarding world, to examining advances in adaptive backcountry riding, following black athletes in the National Brotherhood of Skiers, and spending the day with a legendary European mountain guide, Daymaker sets out to prove there's no better day than one out on the hill. Though online streaming has become the de facto release option for many films, particularly niche subjects, Chris Patterson, director of Daymaker, believes in the power of a theatrical release. It's a huge endeavor, and you're really not doing it for the money, he says. You're doing it purely just to stoke people out. I just feel like the in-theater experience is an entirely different movie than what you would see if you were just watching it on your television or your iPad. Patterson, who has worked with Warren Miller Entertainment for 30 years, says one of his favorite experiences from Daymaker was traveling to Switzerland to film big mountain skier Connery London. Patterson says London jumped at the opportunity, but Patterson had a caveat. Instead of cutting through the pristine powder of the Alps in winter, London would be shredding on grass in the summer. Invited as a method of off-season training for alpine skiers, grass skiing has become popular enough to find traction as a sport in its own right, with world championships, World Cup races, and national competitions now held on grass skis. We went to Switzerland purely for this insane landscape, Patterson explains. 
He's hauling ass down this mountain, and there are cows all over the place, and he's catching air, and it's stunning, Patterson says. It looks like a postcard. Despite the stoke, it was not as easy as clipping into ski bindings and shredding down a layer of fresh powder. It's not like skiing at all. It's more like riding a roller coaster, Patterson explains. On the first day of filming, London went to make a turn on a steep slope and wiped out, breaking the grass skis in the process. London explains the nerves the crew felt after the first day. We were all scratching our heads thinking, man, we're here for another 10 days. This might not work at all, he says. I think we accomplished what we wanted in the end, but it definitely didn't start out good. Daymaker marks London's third appearance in a Warren Miller film. The Bay Area native cut his teeth as a ski racer at the Ski Academy in Lake Tahoe until he graduated high school. Despite his plan to quit skiing and become a surf bum in Santa Barbara, London decided at the last minute to attend the Leeds School of Business at CU Boulder. When I quit racing at 18 and moved to Boulder, skiing became fun, London says. It was the first time I've ever skied without competition dictating my every move. Through school, London would frequent Arapahoe Basin, where the spring skiing reminded him of his home in Tahoe. While Daymaker touches on important topics in snow sports, it doesn't take itself too seriously, and that's what Patterson thinks makes the film stand out. We can show them rad snow skiing in Alaska all day long, and I don't think it'll move the needle like the fun and goofy things, he says. People just can't help but go, what the heck? This is so funny. On the record. More than a year after relocating and rebranding, Paradise Found thrives as the last vinyl shop standing in Boulder. By Jesse J. Gray. Boulder once had the highest concentration of record stores per capita in the United States, according to Paradise Found owner Will Paradise. In the 1970s, dozens of LP shops dotted the map in the sleepy Foothills College town. But after this fall's closure of the much-revered albums on the hill, Paradise's bright and beautiful downtown space at 1646 Pearl Street is the last store dedicated exclusively to new and used vinyl sales. Paradise Found has lived many lives in many locations. First, as Bart's Record Shop on West Pearl near Nick and Willie's Pizza, and later by the Village Coffee Shop on Folsom Street. Paradise bought the store from then-owner Bart Stinchcomb in 2016, before moving the newly rebranded shop to its current East Pearl Corner lot last spring. It's exactly the kind of movement through time and space that music captures for the 62-year-old former Whole Foods executive. If we weren't called Paradise Found, we would be called Time and Place, because that's what music is for me, Paradise says. Listening to a song or album, I can tell you where I was working and who I was with. When I got married, when my kid was born, so many of my records point to some specific time in my life. Now, posting record high sales numbers during a post-shutdown moment when many other local businesses are struggling, Paradise says the care with which he and his staff curate that experience for others is a big part of their success. 
I'm always telling the staff to think of themselves as sommeliers. Your job is to turn people on to great stuff they wouldn't otherwise find, he says. Once they trust you, they just come in and they're like, I want to get three albums. What should I buy? That's when it's fun. To help others along the journey of soundtracking their lives, Paradise Found is hosting a new music listening party on November 18th, which the store's vinyl buyer, Patrick Selvage, hopes to turn into a regular happening. The event will feature libations from local linchpins like Moxie Bread Company and Avery Brewing, along with a thoughtful and curated selection of genre-hopping 2022 releases designed to spark conversation and help get listeners out of their comfort zone. Let's say someone listens just to folk. Maybe we'll play this hip-hop record that might have some folk influence or something, Selvage says. You play it and they're like, whoa, okay, maybe I should listen to that. But Selvage and Paradise say events like these and the store's broader mission at this particular time and place go deeper than helping customers find their next favorite album. It's about fostering a sense of community among people with a shared love of music. Right now, there's this craving for social connection for people. We really have a great community, and we know our customers by name, Paradise says. We'll send them texts. This album came in, and I think you want it. For us, it's really about that one-on-one experience. No one is doing that kind of stuff. And of course, a big part of that one-on-one experience starts and ends with the rank-and-file staff at Paradise Found. It's another area where the store is defying expectations of the market, reporting zero turnover since relocating to the new space in March of 2021. At the barbershop where my son gets his hair cut, it's a different barber every three months, Paradise says. But at our place, the staff are all still here. No one has left. They're as much a part of the environment here as anything. Employee Elise Colley, who has worked at the store for six years, says that's because the job provides an opportunity to help offer an essential balm against an uncertain world. In some ways, she says her part-time job behind the counter at Paradise Found isn't a far cry from working her private practice as an art therapist, where she helps people process trauma through creative outlets. The thing that got you through the worst times of your life, I get to share that with people and help provide that experience every day, she says. When someone comes in and says, I'm looking for this, you understand that it's more of a spiritual need than a retail need. Turn it up. Best of 2022 listening party. 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Friday, November 18th. Paradise Found Records and Music. 1646 Pearl Street, Boulder. Tickets, $10 at the door, or call 303-444-1760. Death in Memphis. Prolific singer-songwriter Kevin Morby talks mortality, music, and memory ahead of two Colorado performances by Jesse J. Gray. In her landmark 1977 book, On Photography, Susan Sontag calls photographs a testament to time's relentless melt. For the influential essayist and cultural critic, the captured image was a sort of memento mori, a reminder that each of us one day will be dead.
Sontag's sentiment comes home to roost on This is a Photograph, the seventh LP by celebrated singer-songwriter Kevin Morby. The latest from the prolific Kansas City-based indie rock musician begins with a rumination on a photo of his dad as a young man, shirtless on the front lawn under the West Texas sun, staring down the barrel of the camera with a defiant stare of a prize fighter. Got a glimmer in his eye, Morby sings over the effervescent guitar jam, blooming with groove-forward organ stabs and backing vocals from the Stax Music Academy student chorus. Seems to say, this is what I'll miss about being alive. This is what I'll miss after I die. This particular image of Morby's father took on a searing significance after he collapsed one night during family dinner. His dad was rushed to the hospital, where he eventually recovered from the scare, as Morby and the rest of his family poured through old photos of the loved one they nearly lost. He would have been the same age I was looking at that photograph, and it also would have been the same year I was born, looking at the camera with this sort of overconfident gaze on his face, Morby says. It just seemed like that photo was having this direct conversation with the incident that had taken place a couple hours before. This conversation between life and death drives the remaining ten tracks on This is a Photograph which finds Morby contemplating mortality with his trademark disarming poeticism. Heartbreakers like the banjo-forward Aaron Ray duet Bittersweet TN mingle with winking pop rock gems like Rock Bottom and moody mid-tempo bops like Disappearing, before returning to the interior worlds of Morby's parents in the bookend album Closer, bringing it all back home to a family growing old, inside the boxing ring of time. Despite the heaviness of his subject, Morby manages to keep his buoyant new full length from sinking beneath the weight of its themes throughout the course of its 45-minute runtime. The grim specter of death never quite dissolves from the frame, but it never quite overcomes the album's tender celebration of life either. One of the main goals was to look at the tragedy of death, which is the subject matter of the record from a different angle, Morby says. To be alive at all is such a pleasure and a privilege, so let's celebrate that instead of mourning. Southern Soul But death isn't the only spirit haunting this as a photograph. The historic southern city of Memphis, where Morby finished writing the album, looms large throughout. From late influential singer-songwriter Jeff Buckley to slain civil rights hero Martin Luther King Jr. and the soul and funk heritage of the city's legendary Stax records, disparate figures from the home of the blues left their mark on the 34-year-old artist as he completed his life-affirming new LP. A lot of these stories have this thing in common. They were dreamers who, in pursuit of their dream, got taken too early, Morby says. It didn't feel like a coincidence that there was a through line to so many people there, and I just found it fascinating. To mine this place-specific inspiration, Morby holed up in a suite at the historic Peabody Hotel downtown, while the world was still largely shuttered in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. He describes this time as a sort of creative oasis among the chaos of the moment, his only visitors being the hotel's celebrity North American Mallards, 
who dutifully completed their red carpet duck march to the fountain in the main lobby each day. It was still a very scary time, though. It was pre-vaccine and Trump was still in office. It was insane, Morby says. But I spent a lot of time alone in the company of all these stories. It's the most I've ever tried to get inside of my songs and do the research for them. And I do feel like it would paid off in this big way. While the resulting This is a Photograph takes listeners on a journey through the beating heart of Southern Soul, it never strays far from the animating force of its opening salvo, that haunting front lawn image of Morby's father, a window to the past, Memento Mori. We open with that song every night, and watching people sing along really resonates with the sentiment. This is what I'll miss about being alive, Morby says. I think a lot of people feel that way about seeing live music and being at a show. So it's really doing what I hoped it would do. It's bringing people together for this nice moment. On the bill, Kevin Morby with Coco, 8 p.m., Saturday, November 5th, Gothic Theatre, 3263 South Broadway, Englewood. Sunday, November 6th, Washington's 132 Laporte Ave, Fort Collins. Real to Real. Return of the Boulder Jewish Film Festival and Denver Film Festival by Michael J. Casey. Two film festivals return this weekend, both celebrating milestone anniversaries. Let's start at the Dairy Arts Center with the 10th annual Boulder Jewish Film Festival, screening 18 international movies from November 3 to 13th. The BJFF opens Thursday with the Boulder premiere of Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song. You know the song. You probably know John Cale's version, maybe even Jeff Buckley's. You've heard it in movies like Watchmen and TV shows like Scrubs. We're not talking just iconic, but ubiquitous. You might not know the number of revisions Cohen went through while writing and performing the song and the reasons personal, spiritual, and commercial, that went into the song's composition. Directors Daniel Jeller and Dana Goldfein assemble an impressive collection of interviews, a slew of archival material, and more renditions of Hallelujah than you ever knew you needed. And as long as we're talking docs, make sure to carve out time for Spear Goes to Hollywood, November 4th. Israeli director Vanessa Lapa's excoriation of Albert Speer. Speer was Adolf Hitler's ally and chief architect, but unlike Hermann Goring and Alfred Jody, he was not sentenced to death at the Nuremberg trials. His excuse? He did not know about the crimes being committed, though he had no qualms claiming that upwards of 12 million toiled under him as slave labor. In 1969, Speer wrote a best-selling memoir, Inside the Third Reich. Paramount tried to adapt the book into a feature film, and Lapa uses the meetings between Speer and Hollywood screenwriter Andrew Birkin as the framing device to explore Speer's life, his complicity and Hollywood's fascination with trying to find men among monsters. It's a powerful and troubling documentary that won't leave you anytime soon. Down south, the 45th Denver Film Festival, DFF, unspooled across the mile-high city over the next two weekends. 
Sticking with the documentary theme, DFF offers quite a few worth your time, including Love, Charlie, The Rise and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter, November 3rd and 8th. A driven perfectionist and a kitchen tyrant, Trotter was known for putting Chicago on the fine dining map in the 1990s and for never serving the same dish twice. And that's over 25 years of service, 10 courses a night. Trotter was among the first wave of celebrity chefs and gave vegetables their due on the dinner table, both of which director Rebecca Halpern highlights on this fascinating and engaging doc that falters at the finish line by papering over one of Trotter's demons. That's not the issue in All That Breathes, November 9th and 10th. Shaunak Sen's documentary about two Muslim brothers rescuing and rehabilitating kite birds from New Delhi's smog-choked skies, and Good Night Oppie, November 3rd, Ryan White's crowd-pleasing look at NASA's Mars rover mission, Opportunity. All That Breathes is quiet and contemplative, like a chamber piece. Good Night Oppie is bombastic and direct, and loaded with pop-fueled needle drops, Both are family-friendly, and depending on what field of study your little ones are interested in, they're sure they'll find inspiration here. On screen, Boulder Jewish Film Festival, November 3-13th, Dairy Arts Center, 2590 Walnut Street, boulderjcc.org. The 45th Denver Film Festival, November 3rd-13th, multiple venues, denverfilm.org. Native Noir by Bart Shainman. Indigenous art is finally having its long overdue moment in American culture. From TV shows Reservation Dogs and Dark Winds with predominantly Native American casts, to novels from Colorado writers like Kali Fayardo Anstein's Woman of Light and Stephen Graham Jones' My Heart is a Chainsaw, The range of indigenous voices and perspectives has never been more prominently featured in mainstream art. Now add another important work, Erica T. Worth's White Horse, released November 1st via Flatiron Books. It's a horror novel about an indigenous woman's quest to discover the truth of her family's past after coming upon an artifact haunted by her mother's spirit. As an urban native writer of Apache, Chickasaw, and Cherokee descent, Worth says this cultural moment is a chance for indigenous people and the rest of the country to experience the depth and diversity of their art on a larger scale. For native readers and watchers, it's an opportunity to finally see ourselves on the screen and page, she says. For everyone else, it's an opportunity to enjoy the genuinely good work that we do and we're always capable of doing. A Hard-Boiled Tour Through the novel's tough, noirish narration, we meet Carrie James, a 35-year-old bartender from Denver who loves Stephen King, Megadeth, and drinking at the White Horse Bar. The story kicks off when her cousin Debbie gives her a bracelet that invokes visions of Carrie's mysteriously disappeared mother and a Chickasaw boogeyman called the Lofa. Carrie then embarks on a quest to discover what happened to her mom. The quest leads her to several area landmarks, including Denver dive bars, the kitschy and run-down Lakeside Amusement Park, and the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, the original inspiration for Stephen King's The Shining, 
where Worth pays homage to the author's influence on her work. Worth, who lives in Denver, knows the landscape well, having spent time in these places at various ages of her life. She views this novel in part as an homage to old Denver, which she sees as dying. For example, the White Horse Bar has been bought and will certainly be bulldozed over, Worth says. To research the Stanley Hotel section, the writer took her niece along and stayed in an allegedly haunted room that she describes in the book. Which supposedly has an angry white man who glares at you from the corners and might scratch you, she says. We brought him a spirit plate, and every time we talked to him, thanking him for letting us stay in his room, the light flickered. Throughout the book, it's clear Worth is pulling from an intimate knowledge of the region and its people to shape the narrative, from the depth of the characterization to the Colorado landmarks. Take, for instance, this passage. Walking through Lakeside was like moving into a bygone era. The faded yellow entrance with Lakeside in cursive, yellow and orange sunbeams shooting out of the lettering, was peeling. And the building hadn't been the bright white of the past for many, many years. But my past was still there. A past that belonged to a city that in ways no longer existed. In the dream I'd had with my mother, Lakeside had been young, bright, beautiful. Portal to Another World The impetus for Whitehorse came from mystery around the death of Worth's grandmother. The story had been that she died by suicide, but after a police officer looked at the death certificate, Worth's mother was told that the paperwork looked doctored, and it was possible her husband had murdered her. The disagreement around what happened in my family is a tension that's obviously penetrated into my very psyche, she says. Worth says she chose to write this story as a horror novel because she sees herself primarily as a paranormal writer. I love the idea of a portal to another world, Worth adds. It allows me to express the darker parts of the gritty realism that I wrote in before but it allows all of that dark magic that I adored as a child as well. As evidenced by the work of film director Jordan Peele and novelist Gabino Iglesias, horror as a genre can be a powerful lens into the American experience, and in particular, the experience of BIPOC Americans. The commonality is the exposure to historical genocide, colonization, and slavery, Parts of history that BIPOC people have in common that follow us to this day, Worth says. Horror allows people to express, metaphorically, the big and small fears that they have on a very human level, and a very political level, in a way that's productive and cathartic. Several factors have contributed to the appetite for amplified voices from BIPOC creators in the cultural discourse. One example worth cites is the Twitter hashtag PublishingPaidMe, which helped shed light on discrepancies in how much certain writers were paid versus others, often showing that people of color were getting short shrift. Protest movements like Black Lives Matter and Standing Rock have also played a role, according to Worth. But it's not just readers who are hungry for more stories from BIPOC communities in the wake of these culture-shifting social uprisings. 
Publishers, too, are realizing that they're not going to make the money that they're complaining about not making unless they actually allow diverse voices in the country to read, she says. Already missing Halloween? Here are five horror, dark fantasy, or dark crime novels Erica Teaworth loves. 1. Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia It's smart, it's fun, and it's just wonderfully weird. The bad guy is a mushroom. I love that the main character is a person of indigenous descent who is saucy and smart, and that the novel takes place in Mexico in the 50s. 2. Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse I think Roanhorse has single-handedly changed Native American literature. This novel is imaginative and brilliantly executes multiple points of view, but it also gives you a ticket to a magical version of Maya territory that's almost nostalgic. 3. The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix Essentially, Hendrix could write a novel every three months, and I would just read his work until I was dead or he was. So glad he isn't doing that. This book is visceral. A feminist tour de force, it addresses race in possibly the smartest and fairest way I've ever seen a non-BIPOC person do. And on top of that, it's one of those novels you tear through because you absolutely have to get to the end. 4. Ring Shout by P. DeJelly Clark Clark is normally a fantasy writer, and he's also a professor like me. But this novella is horror. And it's the sharpest discussion and the most organic and perversely fun one when it comes to racism in the South during the Civil Rights era I've ever read. There are swords, other worlds, African-American gods and goddesses. It's a killer. 5. Winter Counts by David Heska Wanbley Waden. Full disclosure, Waden is my partner, but he's also the wildly talented thriller author of a novel that follows Virgil, a vigilante on the Rosebud Reservation. He's been nominated for countless crime and literary awards, and there's a reason. This is just a killer novel. Beautiful Chaos. Colorado Brewery Master Riffs on the Future of Craft Brews by Nick Hutchinson Back in the first half of the 80s, I took my first sip of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Upon finishing what tasted like a magical elixir, I immediately wanted another. I had enjoyed a malted alcoholic beverage prior to it, but Sierra Nevada, a microbrewery, seemed to elevate the taste of beer to a new level. It was the early days for what would become known as craft brewing, but the new stuff was pleasingly bold, with hints of citrus and pine. There would be other aha tastings along my craft beer journey, Red Tail Ale, Fat Tire, Pliny the Elder. Yet it was the beginning of a hop-induced revelation, as well as a burgeoning beer revolution. Fast forward a few decades, and my Sierra-impressed self would be gobsmacked by what's currently available on the shelves at Hazel's Beverage World, 1955 28th Street in Boulder. Pineapple Vanilla Chantilly Milkshake IPAs stand proudly next to variously fruited ales and sour beers, esoteric stouts, and retro-leaning crispies, lagers with a crisp finish. 
present-day beer drinkers face an embarrassment of barley-based riches. There are so many creatively brewed beers now that by all rights, we should be facing beer saturation. Yet, this does not appear to be the case. It's nuts out there, observes Paul Myhill, a longtime beer enthusiast, entrepreneur, and home brewer, who recently earned the title of Colorado Brewery Master after visiting every currently operating brewery and taproom in the Centennial State. We are very spoiled now. American brewers have gone a little wacky, but it's a beautiful chaos. Myhill, who regularly posts funny beer-related memes on his Colorado Beer Guy Facebook page and enjoys poking fun at the vacillations in the brewing world, says he favors classic styles of beer, but he's also quick to note that he's not a beer snob. I think there's a place for it all, he says. You have to offer a bacon maple syrup blueberry pancake milkshake IPA or the fruit slushy beer to appeal to the younger generation who might otherwise be drinking a hard seltzer or some kind of malt-flavored beverage that's not really beer. If you're capturing them with something that beer purists would laugh at and it's a gateway to getting them to possibly enjoy other styles, then great. Myhill, who remembers when Boulder Beer was an early player in the craft beer movement and Liquor Mart was his go-to spot for beverage variety, considers himself to have lived through and been an active part of the craft brewing revolution. He says he does not envision a future without specialized beer, and he sees younger drinkers as a key. The industry is no longer in its hyper-growth phase, he muses. I'd say we're in the early maturity stage. Craft beer will always be around, because a lot of consumers don't want to drink the same beer twice. It's part of that untapped, the social media platform for beer aficionados phenomenon, where people want to see how many different beers they can drink. I don't think we'll ever get away from this segment, but the core craft beer style is now your daddy's beer, or even your granddaddy's beer, and the younger drinkers appreciate new twists. In terms of the latest whims within the ever-shifting world of craft beer, Myhill is particularly excited about a return to some of the earlier taste profiles from the left coast. I'm excited about the resurgence of the West Coast IPA, he enthuses. You're seeing people giving up some of their barrel edge from New England style to West Coast again. West Coast style IPAs are defined by their bitter hop flavors and floral accents whereas New England hazies lean toward fruity, often tropical flavors, and have a signature unfiltered and cloudy appearance. Both of these styles are now considered a core style of beer in the craft world, but it wasn't always so. Brewers never thought they would be brewing hazies, but you can't predict what people will want, Myhill says. It used to be that if you had a beer that was overhopped, you thought the brewer was trying to hide impurities. If a beer didn't brew to style, you could hop it up to hide your mistakes. Then people liked it. It also used to be that if your beer wasn't clear, you were considered off style. You didn't get medals for it. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at 
www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.